A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheimbare Brüder in America. So tausend Schafes at the guitar. Out of the 24 who were killed, were Americans who had come to learn in heaven. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late. And it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome everyone to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. But this is not just another episode, this is a continuation the next installment of our ongoing series about the story and the history of the Valajan Yeshiva. And we're up to part four here. And part four, we settle down, the Nesiv is the Rosh Yeshiva, and the Yeshiva goes into its golden age. Um, and its golden age is um, the most prominent uh, students that were eventually to become famous as alumni of the Valajan Yeshiva um, come during this time. The learning is unparalleled. The uh, growth of the Yeshiva is unparalleled. Eventually, when the fire yet again destroys the Yeshiva, then the brick building that we now see and the tours that we go, hopefully will continue to go when things settle down in the world. Um with the coronavirus, unfortunately, stopping trips, among other damage that it's doing, and um, and the and there, so the again, like I said, the brick building is built. The structure of the yeshiva in eighteen eighty one, Reb Chaim Brisker, totally revolutionizes and uh, raises the whole yeshiva to a new level with his new style of of uh, learning, of study, of teaching. And um, that really uh, brings the yeshiva to a whole new level. So there's a lot to say about the Golden Age, and we could really go on um, for quite a while. But this, uh, being that it's part four already, we have to somehow, we have to also close the yeshiva eventually, so we don't have that much time left uh, in this series. So I want to actually start off with a story that, of all people, the one who alerted me to this source was uh, Professor Emanuel Etkis. I didn't see this source, which is an apparently a standard Hebrew biography of um, mainstream biography of Rebaruch Ber Leibovich, the great commandant of Rosh Hashiva, and this is a story that appears there, and I subsequently saw it in the in the book itself. Um, so, and this really brings out um, the the two sides, or not two sides, but really the different currents that are going on in the Valajan Yeshiva at the time during its later years during the Golden Age. 
So apparently, um, when Rebarch Ber is later on, he's a Rashiva in Kamenitz, and his old buddy uh, from Valozhin, Chaim Nachman Bialik, who had subsequently become the national poet of the Jewish people, a great Zionist poet, the Hebrew writer, and before that, you know, he was also in, in Odessa. He had a printing press. He, he didn't just print his own stuff. He printed other stuff with Chun Ravitsky and other um, Hebrew writers of the Odessa circle. And then after the revolution, it was actually during the Russian Civil War, in the early 1920s, he leaves Odessa. He eventually comes to Israel. He spends some time in the United States and other places. And... um and he had learned in Valazhin earlier on, and he wanted to, according to the story, he wanted to meet up with Rebar Ber. And Rebar Ber refuses to meet him because he's a Russia. He doesn't want to meet up with his his uh, former um, study partner. And Bialik insists that he wants to meet him, he wants to meet him, and when Rebar Ber is collecting money in the United States for the Kamenitz Yeshiva, so Bialik also happens to be in America at the time, and he sends message after message that he has to meet him, he wants to meet him, he needs to meet him, please let me meet him, whatever it is, I just need to see you. And finally, Baruch Ber agrees that he can meet Bialik under three conditions, draconian conditions. Number one, that Baruch Ber is not going to look at him because Oster lehistakel b'fnei odom Russia, not a lot of look at a Russia. Number two, that you're not going to say a single word. And number three, as soon as we're done the meeting, as soon as, meaning as soon as the Baruch Ber is finished saying what he has to say, then Bialik immediately leaves the room, he takes an exit. And Bialik, who was so intent on seeing Baruch Ber, he agreed to the three conditions despite the difficulty. And he comes in, and immediately Baruch Ber uh, turns his eyes away, and he says, we sat on the same bench in Valajin Yeshiva, and we were there together, and we learned there together. And I became a Rosh Yeshiva, and I go into the Yeshiva building, where the greatest minds and the greatest future leaders of the Jewish people sit, and I give them shiurim, and I teach them Torah, the elite, the cream of the Jewish people. And you, you became a poet. Where do they read poetry? They read it in the bathroom. They read it in other places like that. And who reads it? Uh, the, the, the riffraff, the lower classes of the Jewish people. And uh, not, not anyone special. So that's where your creations are, and that's who they're influencing. And this is what uh, where I am, and this is what I'm influencing. And that was the end of their meeting. So... That's the story. You know, obviously the story is not true. It never happened. <laughs> I think I think that was obvious. But what's important is that the story is told over. And, and very often in uh, these type of documents, it's less important that the facts are made up or not. They're part of a mythology which defines a certain culture, defines a certain collective memory, which is which is just as important almost as uh, almost just as important as. Um, as an actual historical fact, because this brings out a certain memory of what went on in Valazhin during that time, during those later years. On one hand, you had Rebarch Ber being produced. Rebarch Ber 
was just is just one example of the many, many of uh, some of the greatest leaders of the Jewish people, Rashi Yeshiva, rabbis, um, such a rich variety, uh, and and almost a majority, almost a, of the next generation of the rabbinical leadership came from Valazhin during that last period of time. In the interwar period, and even in the immediate post-war period, Rabbi Zalman and other people like him were still around. Um, and that was all from the a product of that later part of the Valazhin time. And then you also had, during that time, you had Haskalah in Valazhin, you had Zionism in Valazhin, you had these undercurrents uh, which produced other types of leaders, the most famous of whom was Bialik, but he was not definitely not far from the only one. There was others as well, which we'll perhaps get into uh, later on. So how does that come to be? How do we have that at one time? They <laughs> have the, the cream, the, uh, the greatest uh, leaders of the Jewish people being produced in this factory of Torah, of scholarship, of Reb Chaim Brisker, and on the other hand, you have this other stuff going on in the yeshiva, and to what extent was it actually going on? So I was going to go a little, a little bit about into what was happening in Valazhin at that time, and I want to focus actually on an angle that's usually overlooked. I want to go through the yearly schedule of the yeshiva. It was also just Purim, and Pesach is coming up, so I want to talk a little bit about the Yom Tavim in the yeshiva, and through the schedule, both the mundane, the daily schedule, and the Shabbos, and then the Yom Tovim, and then the and then the vacation time, or lack thereof, a vacation time, which we'll get to in a second. Then we'll, we'll get a little bit of a feeling of what it was like to be inside the Velazhin Yeshiva, and that will bring us really to um, to understanding the both the uh, the regular part, the the mainstream, and then the undercurrents as well. So first of all, the daily schedule, which you mentioned already previously in other podcasts, remains so until the end of the yeshiva, during this time also. The idea that there was learning 24-7 in the yeshiva, that it never stopped, there was mishmaris, there was shifts of the study, that they learned through the entire shas, that most guys learned on their own, they were not part of a formal learning. The yeshiva had official masechtas that I was learning by, and there was a daily shir at this time in the later period. Um, the Nitziv gave shir three times a week, and Reb Chaim Brisker gave shir three times a week. And the shir was not the main uh, attraction in Velazhin, never was. And even the popular shir of Reb Chaim still wasn't the main attraction. The learning was mainly done on their own. Now, once we mentioned that, that the amount of shear was six, that means it was not seven, right? So which day was there no shear? So it was Shabbos, which is, again, not so obvious. There were other yeshivas that there were, were shiurim on Shabbos. There were yeshivas later on, after Valajan, that had shiurim on Shabbos. Famously, the Lakewood yeshiva in the early years, or Byron Cutler, I heard this from several of his Talmudim, one of the main, he had a few shiurim during the week. You know, he didn't live in Lakewood, he only came a uh, couple of times, he came for the weekends, and he, I think he might have come once during the week, but maybe wrong, and he gave one of the main shiurim was on Shabbos, and there were other yeshivas like that as well. In Valajan, there was no shiur on Shabbos. Now, there was, so, so what was unique about Shabbos? Not really anything. There was no dining room, so no one ate together, there was no singing together, there was no joint meal, 
the regular Mishmarais existed on Shabbos also. In other words, after davening on Friday night, many guys went to sleep and they or they ate a quick meal by their stancia, by the where they stayed, by where they lived, and then they would go to sleep, and then they would come up, wake up in the middle of the night, and they would learn, they would take the night shift, um, while others learned immediately after the Suda. And so Shabbos, there was nothing really different about the schedule, there was nothing special or unique about the Shabbos, except for the fact that there was no shear, which again didn't make a big difference. What actually was different during the week was Friday, even though there was a shear on Friday, but there was less attendance because the Thursday night night shift learning in the yeshiva was uh, unusually intense. Many would learn through the night. It wasn't only the regular people learning at night. Um, it was a much larger crowd. So during the day on Friday, people were tired. People would take care of their personal needs. It was a day more to keep your own time to read privately, whatever you were reading, which we'll hopefully get to later on in this uh, episode. Um, and, uh, and, and so Friday was a bit of a unique day, but not Shabbos. And that brings us to Yom Tovim. And interestingly enough, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur were not something unique or special like they were in later yeshivas. Now the reason that in later yeshivas, Yom Neirayim in the yeshiva, which till today still has a certain aura of how special the yeshiva is, is because of the Musar movement. It's because of places like Slabatka that they made a big issue about El and Yom Neirayim and how special and how powerful and intense of a religious experience Yom Neirayim and the yeshiva together, davening and the uh, and the work that's done in the yeshiva towards the Yom Neirayim, towards the Rosh Yom Kippur. In Volazhin, none of that existed. In fact, there was a short davening in Yom Kippur we have one of the memoirs tells us that it was so short and so quick, the davening, that they had a time for a three-and-a-half-hour learning seder during Yom Kippur. Okay? And the reason is, is that Volazhin was all about learning. That was the only thing that mattered. If we go back to during the week, davening in the yeshiva was not mandatory, unlike later yeshivas, like Slabatka, especially Mir. Mir during Rabbi Ruchim's time. Rabbi Ruchim was once interviewing, Rabbi Ruchim Levavitz was once interviewing a Bachar, to be accepted into the Mir Yeshiva. Again, this is a much later period of time, and in the Mir, not in Velazhin. This is in the 1930s. And uh, the, he asked the boy if he plans on coming to Davin every day in the Yeshiva. And the boy said, in the Yeshiva that I come from, no one Davin's in the Yeshiva. So Rabbi Rucham said, in that case, we don't know if we can accept you into the Mir, because in Mir Yeshiva, he said in Yiddish, he said, he said the Ersh to say there is Davinin, the first seder of the day is davening, shachris, together with the yeshiva, and we don't take in boys for half a day. We take in full-time students only. So that, that, that's how extreme it was, and, and, and that was, again, influence of the Muslim movement. The idea in Velazhin was that the only thing that mattered was learning, not to waste any time of learning, an intense learning experience, and not an intense religious experience. It wasn't about... Uh, you know, Musr or Yiddishkeit or a powerful religious experience or coming together as a group. It was all about one thing and one thing only, learning Taira and nothing else. So again, it's different than the idea of later yeshivas where it's an educational institution, where it's where it's teaching and giving over a form of Yiddishkeit. In Velazhin, it really was not that case. However, on Sukkot, there was singing and dancing through the night, every night of Cholomite. They would actually have, I don't know if they called it a Simchas Beis I'm not sure if it had that name then, 
but there was definitely celebrating and dancing and singing, which is almost sounds almost Hasidish, through the entire night. It says, a few of the memoirs talk about it, how they would go until the morning, and they would go straight from the dancing to Davin Shachris. So, and they even mention how one of the songs is Baruch Eloikenu, which till today is a famous song that comes from Valajan and some shuls and some yeshivas sing that on some chastaira and shvuas as a tradition from Valajan, the original Baruch Eloikenu song. It's the Today, the little children sing it because Parai in pajamas in the middle of the night is the same tune as the Velazhin Baruch Aleikeinu, which is uh, an interesting irony. The most, one of the most unique uh, holidays in Velazhin during this time was the Purim Rabbi. The Purim Rabbi was uh, was appointed a Purim Rav. Uh, the Purim Rav was appointed by the Bacharim, and it was somewhat of a democratic process about how he was elected by the Bacharim, by the students of the yeshiva, and he was the Purim Rav, and his job was to make fun of the yeshiva, to criticize, and that was a way to make everyone happy and to give uh, backhanded criticism of of the yeshiva, and so that they know what the, what the Bacharim think, and and uh, and it was you know all in good cheer and. And there was a whole a whole ceremonial process about how he got appointed and how he went up and the things he was allowed to say and what the limits on censorship was and 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 they then he would trade hats with the Rosh Yeshiva. We know today that Rosh Yeshiva wear a Rosh Yeshiva type of a hat. The Rosh Yeshiva hat of the Nitziv was a strimal, because a strimal was not a distinctly Hasidic dress at the time. The strimal was simply a fur hat that you wore in cold weather in Russia. And the fancier uh, um, the hat, the more the more that showed your status in society. So the aristocracy, the nobility, wore fancier fur hats, and that's what rebbes and Russia yeshiva and rabbanim would wear. The Nitziv was an aristocrat of the Jews, so he wore a strimal type of hat. And so the Purim rabbi would switch his hat with the Nitziv. He would wear the strimal of the Russia yeshiva, and the Nitziv would wear the Bachar's simple hat, and they would switch roles, as it were, and eventually the Nitziv put an end to this practice, because there was too much criticism, he didn't like it, it was getting too intense and too personal and too harsh, and even in the spirit of Purim, it was getting a little bit out of control, so it seems that in the end of the 1870s, the Nitziv put an end to it. And Stamford, in the book, which almost everything here comes from him, among the many other memoirs and other sources that there are in Valajan, but of course the dominant source, like I mentioned at the beginning of the series, is uh, is Charles Stempfer's book. <laughs> he mentions that it might be related to to the Nitziv's remarriage, that they were getting really personal. The Nitziv had married um, his second wife, who was Rebichil Michal Epstein, the Archashulchan's daughter. She had recently been divorced, and she was much younger than the Nitziv. The Nitziv's first wife, who was Rebichil's daughter, had died. And and uh, because she was a, a divorcee, and because she was young, and the age difference, and all kinds of other things, they were making fun of his wife, which was not so nice. So he put an end to this whole Purim Rav business, and eventually just became a party, a Purim Asiba in the Nitziv's house on his own turf, where they can, where he can control what goes on. Interestingly, Pesach was not a Bein Hazmanim in the yeshiva. There was no Bein Hazmanim in in the Valajin yeshiva which is very interesting because it's different than both all the subsequent later yeshivas. Till today, there's a Bein Hezmanim in all yeshivas that come supposedly from Valazhin. Not only that, but it's different than all the yeshivas that preceded Valazhin, the old Polish yeshivas, especially in the old, old ones, pre 
1648, there was long, long Bein Hazmanims. In fact, there was only two Zmanim a year, each one three and a half months long. The rest of the year was Bein Hazmanim. The yeshivas were not an entire year. And um, and uh, the, in, the, in Velazhin, the yeshiva was officially in session all year long, without exception. Now, people went home for Pesach very often. People went home for Sukkot very often, if they lived nearby or if they had money. But um, the yeshiva officially didn't close. The yeshiva continued. They started the new, after Yom Tevin, when a lot of guys came back and there were more people around, so they started officially a new Zman. But it wasn't that until then there was no, the shiurim continued, the learning continued with just a smaller crowd, even over Pesach. Over Pesach, many guys in the yeshiva would try to get invited out to what was called Yishuvnikim. There were Jews who lived in what was then called in Yiddish the Derfalach, the small, tiny agricultural villages, which is smaller than Shtetlach, believe it or not, smaller than the small towns, the market towns. You had big cities like Minsk or Vilna or Warsaw, and then and that was a proper Shtot, that was a city. Then you had Shtetlach, which is small market town, that's where most Jews lived. And then you had Derfalach, which was tiny little outposts, villages, where very often the Jewish community there was not even organized as a community. They very often didn't have a school or a shul or a minion even. And they're very often very simple Jews, almost illiterate uh, who worked in either agriculture or worked uh, for parrots or contracted to, to run something. Very often they had a tavern or things like that for the local non-Jewish population. And these, uh, they they usually more well-off. They lived out in the, in the countryside where their food was more in abundance. And they would invite the yeshiva guys to be by them for Pesach. And interesting that the Velazhin yeshiva guys would eat by them for Pesach. Okay, have these yeshuvnikim hosting them. And, uh, you know, they, they, they would have no qualms about eating by these people for Pesach. So that's also an interesting quirk of history. But um, as time went on, less and less got invited out. And what happens is, is that, uh, you know, about 150 guys, which is, you know, approximately half, a little less than half of the yeshiva stays in the yeshiva for Pesach, and most of them are, have nowhere to go. So they eat the sdarim by the Rosh Yeshiva. About a hundred of them eat by the Nitziv. Two sdarim by the Nitziv. A hundred of them. That's a, quite a big seder. Another 25 by Reb Chaim Brisker. Other staff of the Yeshiva have, have guys over. They would, after davening on the first night of Pesach, there would be singing and dancing in the Yeshiva until the Nitziv was ready to host them, until they, until the house was ready. And then they would all march over to the Nitziv's house. And uh, and eat uh, the seder and have the seder participate in the seder by him. Um, another event during the yeshiva's uh, existence, it seems that they would commemorate the yard site of Reb Chaim by going down to his cavern. And whenever we go down to Velazhin, we go down to we first go to the yeshiva, we talk about it, we learn there, and I go with the groups, and then we walk down. It's only about a block and a half away. It's a short walk, a three four minute walk. We walk down to the cemetery and we go daven by Reb Chaim Velazhiner's cover. It's still there. You know, it's been redone, been refurbished. And and it seems, it's you know, not 100% clear, but it seems that in Yadal Sivan, when the yard site of Reb Chaim Velazhiner was, the yeshiva would go down, like we do, to Reb Chaim Velazhiner's cover and daven there. That was, uh, that was the custom. So they commemorated his yard site um, 
um, also. That might have been part of the schedule. So you have, this is the learning atmosphere. This is the schedule that, for to a certain extent, never changes. The shiurim are constant. There's no bein azmanim. The learning is 24 hours a day. Shabbos is a regular day. Yom even Rosh Hashanim, Kippur are somewhat a regular day. And the Nitziv is managing the yeshiva. He has a very dominant personality, very strong leadership. He's always walking up and down the aisles during every shift of learning. The funding of the yeshiva becomes more sophisticated. It's not only fundraisers who are sent out, but now begins also the the pushka system. They send out valajan pushkas. Originally, pushkas, you know, tzedakah boxes were were the were the uh, exclusive. Uh, dominance of the Jewish communities in in uh, in Eretz Yisrael, in Yerushalayim, and Sfas, that they the Chalukah system had distributed pushkas to collect money from the Jews of Eastern Europe, and now Valajan was kind of encroaching on that. By the way, the Mir also was, and then there was so not only was the Eretz Yisrael Kailal Chalukah system, the Prushim, they were not happy with the with the uh, with the uh, fact that Valajan had pushkas, but also Valajan and Mir were not happy with each other that they were using pushkas. It seems that if the houses had too many pushkas, then uh, there was not enough money to go around. Eventually the Mir and Valajan went to Dintayr by Rabbi Yitzchak Specter, the Kovner of. This is written now. We have a letter for Rabbi Yitzchak that um, that uh, the pushka wars uh, can be resolved and that the Eretz Yisrael ones are allowed to have their pushkas, the Mir is allowed to have their pushkas, Velazhans are allowed to have their pushkas under certain conditions, but no other places are allowed to have their pushkas, and that's really how it remained. Interesting, the Yeshivas Chachme Lublin, many years later, 40, 50 years later, became the next ones to have uh, Yeshiva, to have pushkas, and, um, and the ones who they were ironically fighting for pushka space was with the Karen Kayemet, the uh, the Zionist organization, they had their own pushkas. And now they were fighting for pushka space uh, with uh, Yeshiva's Chachmah Okay, that's pushka battles. If we go, so we have Rabbi Chaim Brisker, he has the new Derech Halimud, which I'm not going to get into, because not only do I not know how to explain it, but it's also not the most exciting and interesting topic. So we're going to go and move from this whole atmosphere of scholarship, of Torah study, of this schedule going on in Velazhin, and now we're going to go on to what else was going on, what were the undercurrents of in the yeshiva. So we'll talk first about a little bit about Zionism. Main, two main topics are Zionism in the yeshiva, or early Zionism. There was no political Zionism at this point. Um, the yeshiva closed down in 1892, and there was no really political Zionism. We're talking about proto-Zionism, or the Chibasiyin movement, or even pre-Chibasiyin um, about that, and then also Haskalah in the yeshiva, Haskalah literature, and so on. We'll talk uh, about those two uh, topics. So you have, first of all, the idea that the Nitziv himself was a supporter of of this early Chibasiyin, right? The Nitziv has a couple of letters that, that, that I've seen, that you have, that have been printed, that um, that in support of the new yeshiv of building up the new settlements and about moving there and 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 and, and encouraging settlement there. Now you have to you have to again clarify what does Zionism mean at this time? What does support of the yeshiv mean at this point? Because there's a lot of 
a misunderstanding, and we touched on it a little bit in our series of the rabbis and the Zionists, but uh, it's worth uh, going into for another minute here at this point as well. The Again, there's no political Zionism left. It only comes in the late 1890s, Theodore Herzl, Der Judenstaat, the Zionist Congress, and so on. But there is nationalism, and Jewish nationalism, in as it expresses itself in many forms of expression, but one of them, and probably the, you know, the mo- most long-lasting one, was Zionism. So it, became, it was a form of modern <coughs> nationalism that was sweeping uh, Europe at the time as well. And in that context, uh, Zionism arose. And as a, an expression of nationalism, the Nitziv and most other rabbinical leaders of his time, not all, but most other rabbinical leaders of his time, definitely were not strong supporters of modern nationalism, or as Jews should be, as strong nationalists. But, on the other hand, there, is a, there was a dispute amongst the rabbis, which again we touched on in the other series, about whether, how do we wait for the exile to end? And someone like Rav Shamshin or Fall Hirsch in Germany said, we don't do anything. We wait in Gullis, in the exile, for it to end. And we don't try to go back to Israel. We don't do anything. There's no human, uh, there's no human redemption. There's no pushing it. There's no forcing it. There's no building settlements and trying to encourage mass immigration. That's all wrong. That's all trying to leave the exile by force. And that's inappropriate. And that had many ad- adherents of Rabbi Shamshid Fall Hirsch's worldview, even if they didn't come from him. Later on, the Rashab of Chabad, and later on, famously, became the uh, the domain of the Rabbi Bishachar David Bells and the Munkatcher of Menchasalazar, and much later on, similar uh, similar but different version in Satmer. Now, now there were other other elements who who, uh, again, this is pre-political Zionism, so the secular nature of the movement is simply non-existent. It could, it could be, and it was, in the first Aliyah probably was true, that most of the settlers were religious, and were, were trying to even keep Shemitah, and that's when all those disputes came about how to keep Shemitah during that time, selling the land, not selling the land, the Rothschild colonies, and so on and so forth. But the idea was, the idea was within religious Jewish settlement, do we support the idea of of helping the Geula come, you know, of, of uh, helping Mashiach come, or whatever, you know, along those lines? And then Itziv, in his letters supporting the Chibas Tzion, he was pretty supportive of it, which was, you know, not not something that uh, that that had that, that was completely universally accepted in rabbinic circles. And he writes that, yeah. Uh, we 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 missed it During, after the time of the Spanish expulsion. We should have done it then. We should have you know had a his iris and inspiration to go settle the land and to create settlement there and agricultural work and and moving back and 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 and, and we should and we missed it then. And he explains why we missed it then and, and whatever. And he said now we have an opportune time and we should do it again this time. And during the such hard times for the Jewish people and he's obviously referring to the political situation in Russia. It couldn't be too explicit because he could get in trouble with the Russian government, but the pogrom is sweeping Russia, the May laws. This is in the 1880s. And he says, because of all that going on, so we should support the settlement and we should... And he writes in almost messianic terms that uh, we, you know, we're going to we're gonna bring... Uh, we're going we're gonna to do things on our own to... 
to to go back. We shouldn't wait for for uh, 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 the Jewish people to be called back. We should be we should do it on our own initiative and move there. So clearly, in the two letters that we have from him, he's showing that type of support. So it shouldn't surprise us at all that there was secret uh, societies in Valajan that supported the settlement in Israel. There was first the Nesiyoyna, uh, which was a secret society in the yeshiva, and they had, um, they had a, they even wrote like something, not, not, not exactly a newspaper, but um, something like that for a while. And they had a swearing-in ceremony to accept members. Now, not all members were in the Valajan yeshiva. They had members in Minsk and in other places, but the idea was, is that uh, the main center of the of it was in Valajin. the and it lasted for about four years between 1885 and 1889, and then it was shut down. So the question you want to ask is why was it secret and why was it shut down? If the Nitziv was such a supporter, the Nitziv was very upset about it, and he was anti it, and he was anti the next one also. If he would have found out about it, but he didn't. Netzach Yisrael, which was created after uh, Nesiyaina was was. Uh, fell apart. There was a third uh, secret society also supporting actual, you know, creating a settlement in Israel, which never came to any fruition, but it was a, an idea, a dream, a vision. Um, and and these secret uh, societies never really um, were able to accomplish many of their stated goals, but there was something that that was a, an activity that kept them busy and, uh, and idealistic uh, to many of the uh, Bacharim and Valajan, sometimes it was from the top guys in the second society, Netzach Yisrael, one of their stated goals wasn't only to strengthen support for uh, Eretz Yisrael, but also to strengthen Yiddishkeit. It was one of their stated goals, was to strengthen Yiddishkeit. By the way, Netzach Yisrael, which lasted until the yeshiva's closing, from 1890 till 1892, Chaim Nachman Bialik was a member, and it would write, write for them. Um, and, uh, and, uh, and, 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 um, and some of the member, some of the top guys in the yeshiva were members of this uh, of this secret society. So why was the Nitziv anti it, and why was it shut down? And the answer is, is for two reasons. Neither of them have anything to do with the fact that it was a Zionist endeavor. Number one, and this is the most important reason, is because this is illegal. The Tsar's government did not allow this. was This was revolutionary. This was considered. Counter this was considered, excuse me, revolutionary activity. This was anti-government. This is again the 1880s after the assassination of Tsar Alexander, the political unrest in Russia, and the reactionary policies of Nikolai II. You have to understand the political context, which we'll get to in the closing of the yeshiva in either next episode or wherever we get to it. But the the uh, the the reactionary forces of the Tsarist government and the Tsarist police was very scary. And a place like Velazhin was under scrutiny, which we'll also see in about the closing of the yeshiva. And any political activity like that that was not priorly sanctioned by the government was illegal. And you could have severe repercussions. The way it was shut down was that the Tsarist police came to Velazhin and shut down Nesiona. And they arrested the Bachar who was in charge of Nesiona. And they sent him to Tsarist prison. Straight and simple. And that's why the Nitziv was against it because he didn't want to get in trouble. He was scared of the Tsar and his police. And that was the main reason. The second reason is, just as importantly for the philosophy of the Lajan, an internal reason. Bittal Tyra. It's a waste of time. 
Anything that's not learning Torah is not welcome in Voloshin. Like we said, they didn't, they didn't even spend on Yom Kippur too much time davening because they wanted to have a three and a half hour Seder. So if that's the case, then definitely political activity is not looked, uh, looked upon with uh, so much positivity in a place like Voloshin. The Natsiv's letters in support of Chibasin was not addressed to Voloshin Yeshiva. It was addressed to the group of Chibasin activists in Warsaw, far, far away from his own yeshiva. And he was writing it just as a respected leader of the Jewish world, his support. In his own yeshiva, there's only one thing that's supposed to go on, the study of Tyra, nothing else. And you're wasting your time with political activities? He's definitely not in support of that, irrespective of the ideology that it has. So that's... That's um that's the 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 and in addition, the Nitziv's position and Chayvetzin was very traditional, in light of Jewish history, in light of the connection to Eretz Yisrael, in light of the holiness, the kedusha of Eretz Yisrael, and the mitzvah satzluyis ba'aretz. It was never nationalistic. Um, the 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 secret Zionist societies in Volozhin had a little bit of a touch of nationalism. They were a little more open to Haskala, and even the, the Netzach Yisrael, which was officially to strengthen Yiddishkeit also, but there was, there was that aspect uh, to it as well. Now we move on from Zionism to Haskala. So first of all, we have to understand what is Haskala, right? Haskala... Again, you have to understand the, the background. There's, there's different forms of Haskalah enlightenment. Enlightenment could mean literature, any, a book, a reading material. In Hebrew, modern Hebrew literature, Mapuz, Avas, or which was the first one, but then later, subsequent, all the other writings. Then there's newspapers, then there's poetry, and, uh, you know, uh, then there's, then there's Haskalah, the movement, as a movement to integrate Jews into the Russian uh, empire, into the Russian society and culture and education. There's the radical Haskalah, which is to fix the Jewish religion, which is in need of improvement. Haskalah could also mean not Hebrew literature, but Russian literature, to be more exposed to the world at large, the Russian language, Russian literature, German literature, modern German science and philosophy, foreign influences in education and, and enlightenment. In other words, it could take on many different forms. So they say again that there was Haskala in Valazhin. What does it mean there was Haskala in Valazhin? Does it mean that there was a group of guys in Valazhin who were radical maskilim who felt that we have to improve the Jewish religion and uh, and fix it up, which ultimately was what led to a weakening of traditional Jewish life, and what a couple of generations later led to secularization. It's it's the you know in Valajin itself, it doesn't seem that there was an active uh, group like that. Um, although we do have in the memoir literature that there are people who say they're actually trying to defend Valajan. You say, you think Valajan was full of Haskalah? They write it like a very rhetoric, rhetorical fashion, but it comes out in a, an interesting way. That you say, most guys were sitting and learning Yoim Valayla day and night with tremendous diligence. He said, how many guys were not learning? How many guys were not keeping traditional Jewish life, weren't keeping Shabbos? Very, very few, which if they're trying to defend the Lashon, but it's interesting because, I don't know, 
Like today, and if you would come and say, you know, yeshiva today, uh, you say, you know, what? Do you, how many mechalal Shabbos do we have in our yeshiva? Not that many, only a few. I don't know how good it would look on the yeshiva's resume, but so you definitely had people who were who were doing that, and they were in Valazhin. Why would they even come to Valazhin? So you also have to understand that in the Russian Empire, Jews, were, with rare exceptions, were not allowed to go to university. If you wanted to go to university, you had to go to Germany, or Italy, or even further, France. It was hard to go to university in, in Tsarist Russia. Valazhin was the... You know, Lahavdil, the Harvard of, of the Jewish world. It was the, it was a place where there's three, four hundred of the most brilliant young intellectuals and, uh, and people came from traditional homes. Some of them, their parents sent them to Valashin. So there were people of all types and backgrounds there. But again, that's the exception and not the rule. When we speak about Haskala and Valashin, what we're mainly talking about is literature. And very often, for the most part, it's the innocent. Uh, quote unquote, you know, for some, you know, even innocent literature was dangerous. But what I mean, what I mean by innocent is, is that it, uh, uh, reading for pleasure literature, poetry, novels, Hebrew literature, Russian, uh, you know, if we'll make a distinction between different types of maskilic literature, something like the works of Moshe Leib Lillianbloom who was active in Vilkomir and then later in other places. He's actually active in Chibasin for a while. And he was a radical masculine. And he wrote extensively, we would call it anti, straight up anti-traditional Jewish life, anti-Orthodoxy. He wrote about the, the need to fix the Jewish religion and to make it more relevant to the times. He was a radical masculine. He wanted to change Jewish religion. That would be less found amongst the students of the Valajan and more entertainment type of literature, stories and, and, and stuff like that. That was passed around from hand to hand. Why was it so likely to be found in Valajan? The reason is, again, many, there are many reasons. Again, you're talking about the, the most brilliant and intellectually curious of the Jewish people. Not only that, you have all these smart Jews coming together from the vast far reaches of the Russian Empire and they're coming and they're being grouped together in one place in Valazhin. Now, most people in their little shtetl, especially when books are expensive, they don't have a lot of books in their little shtetl. So they bring the one or two that they have with them and that they've read, and they bring it to Valazhin. And everyone does that, so you have a nice extensive bootleg a secret library going on, uh, being passed from one stancia, one, one house where guys are staying to another, and they're kind of sharing it with each other. And the same thing happened with um, with newspapers. Um, earlier on, the newspapers were forbidden by the Hanhala, by, by the Nitziv, to have newspapers. The Bachram should read newspapers. Newspapers like HaShachar, HaMelitz was the most popular, Alexander Tzidrbaim, who was from Zamush originally, later published it in St. Petersburg, which the story of HaMelitz and, and also the... Hebrew press and the Yiddish press is is probably a story that we should eventually get to one day. It's an interesting one, but it was extremely popular. And Amelitz tried to balance the fine line, not being a radical Haskalah paper and not being a traditional Orthodox paper. It was tried tried to present itself at least as a as a, uh, a median. Uh, average paper for the masses that kind of was the voice of the Jews in the Russian Empire, and and you know it's debatable how successful they were, but 
uh, later on in Valashin's in, in the history of the yeshiva, there were there was it was it was already you know looked the other way. It was a, you know it was never made an official rule that you're allowed to read amelits or other newspapers, but you were officially but you were unofficially allowed to. People read it. Not only that, but the Netziv and Reb Chaim read hamelitz. So the Netziv and Reb Chaim Brisker, Reb Chaim Brisker would read it in secret. It's questionable how secretly the Netziv would, but they both read it. So, you know, they, they, they read the newspapers, and the Bachum were reading it. So that was, that was you know, in other circles, that was considered a Haskalah influence. Um, now, now, all, most of this, this reading, this Haskalah, this literature, first of all, it was almost never organized into a group. In 1887, there was an attempt to organize a, a literary circle of Haskalah within the Bachrim of the Yeshiva in Valajan, but it didn't last. And, it, you know, the Yeshiva went against it. They broke it apart. And also, there was no reason to. Haskalah literature was something you read on your own at your leisure at night in your bed or Friday afternoon when you wanted to relax. There was no reason to organize a group like they would for the Zionist uh, purposes, like the Nesiona. For Haskalah, there was no reason to, and it remained the purview of uh, the individual, the individual Bachana. Also, almost all of this was done secretly underground. You walked into the Malajan base marriage, the base marriage was full, and they were always learning. And almost everyone with Nishi, without exception, excelled in learning and was very strongly religious and orthodox. And they were, that was the dominant force. You didn't see anything else. In fact, it came to the fore where a famous Maskil who originally learned in Velazhin, Mikhail Yosef Berdachevsky, who ironically grew up in Mezhebiz in the Ukraine, the same town as the Baal Shem Tev. See, that was an interesting combination. This Ukrainian guy from Mezhebiz, a Hasidic Shahom, a Rebish Einikel, he comes to learn in Velazhin, the elite, the aristocratic institution of the Litvish Torah world. And then he leaves and moves to Germany, where he lived in Berlin for many years, and he was a maskil, or we would call him maskil, or, you know, or whatever he was, <laughs> different from his original background. Um, so he, he, you know, he had he, t- he tried it all, and he wrote in praise of Valajan. There's an 1888 article while Valajan still existed. He wrote an article in the paper about how there's Haskala in Valajan, and it's so wonderful. You think it's just a, a backwards institution. No, it's a very progressive place. People get knowledge in languages. Excuse me, they get knowledge in German and Russian and science and literature. It's a wonderful place. You get a full-rounded education in Valajan. And, and, and uh, one of the people who read that article was the young Chaim Nachman Bial, who's also from the Ukraine. He was from Zhitomir. And he, uh, when he arrived in Valajan, he wrote a letter to a friend, which we have the letter, he wrote a letter to a friend. He said, Berdachevsky, <laughs> what he's talking about, the only thing that's in Volozhin is Tyra. The only thing that's in Volozhin is learning. And that's, that's what goes on here. And he got into it. You know, he came looking for the Haskalah of Berdachevsky and he actually got into the learning and he actually was successful at it and enjoyed it for a short period of time before he discovered the undercurrents of Haskalah in the yeshiva, which he eventually did. So in other words, it took a time after you got, you have to get really integrated into the yeshiva to even discover that there was this Haskalah literature around because it was kept bootleg, it was kept secret, and it was not the main and dominant feature of Valajin yeshiva life, which is important to understand. Not only that, 
but the disciplinary, disciplinary measures that were taken in Valajan about the the um, about the Haskal and the yeshiva was was uh, was also very distinctive to Valajan. This set it apart from all later yeshivas, which took very different disciplinary measures. The there was a very lax and laid back attitude. They sometimes cut a person's chalukah. There was very little for the Nitziv to do. You know, it was very hard to kick a guy out of yeshiva. Um, what you could use, you could cut his funding, but not everyone needed the yeshiva's funding. Some of them came from richer homes. Not only that, but if they were related to a donor, now this might sound familiar to today's yeshiva's thing, but if a guy was related to a donor, or he came from a town where that town donated a lot of money, then he can uh, read Haskell literature with impunity, and, no, and the Nitziv couldn't do anything about it, because he can't upset a donor. So if you think that that's an issue that yeshivas are just dealing with today, that's a tradition from Valajan's time about the funding and the donors have a lot of say in not only in the overall uh, what, how the yeshiva should look, you know, the gaboyim, the board of the yeshivas the, who was in Minsk and Vilna, they, 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 who organized the funding, they had a lot to say in the management of the yeshiva overall, but here you have individual donors who can help out individual guys in the yeshiva who are in trouble, and now the Nitziv can't do anything about it because, because he's related to a donor. So that also happened. And then it's hard to pick on the poor kids, you know, because he happens to not have any protexia. So it wasn't, it wasn't so simple. Um, now, um, the, what also was is that the, again, if we make a distinction between Haskalah as a movement and Haskalah as literature or education or exposure to knowledge from outside sources, so that also is a unique a, a unique uh, feature of Alashin, is that the Nitziv himself, if we take it, not Haskalah as the movement, which obviously the Nitziv was very anti, and uh, anti any attempt to change traditional Jewish life or to be more lax in traditional Jewish observance, obviously the Nitziv, like all the other rabbinical leaders of his day, was extremely anti that. But Haskalah as literature, or as education, or as exposure to outside sources of knowledge, he wasn't exactly, exactly the most extreme anti. He himself was knowledgeable in languages, he himself was knowledgeable in many outside areas of knowledge, and he wasn't fundamentally against it. He wasn't fundamentally. What was he fundamentally against? That it shouldn't be in the yeshiva. Why? The same exact thing that we've been saying all along. Because do it on your own time, do it outside Valajan, do it when you graduate, do it when you leave the yeshiva, do it before you come to the yeshiva. Not in Valajan. Valajan is a factory of Tyra, nothing else. It's Bittal Tyra, it's a waste of time. And that's what he was against, not against the knowledge per se. And because of that, the disciplinary measures that he would take weren't as extreme. If we compare it again to the later Musr yeshivas, in the Musr yeshivas, they went, the, the idea was that, that, that the Haskell literature is fundamentally bad, and therefore they went to war against it. Now, the, that's an ideology. Not, it's intrinsically bad. Now, today, that, 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 not today, later on, the influence of both the Muslim movement, and then much later on, in the post-war era, the influence of the Hasidic world, or the Hungarian Orthodox world, and the, in the world of the Chassam Seifer, which is another topic, all those combined to make the pursuance of anything uh, 
outside literature, outside knowledge, fundamentally or intrinsically wrong, that the yeshiva as an educational institution has to stamp out. But that was not the case in Velazhin. Velazhin is actually the classic example of old-school Litvish intellectual elitism. I'll tell you a quick story. We'll end off with this. Uh, the Panevish when was asked why the Panevish Yeshiva in the 1950s and 60s, when he was building it up, he would encourage the married students to stay in Kailal and learn, and learn for as long as they could. And then, again, as now, people were raising the issue. They're going to learn, they're not going to work, they're not going to make a living, they're not going to get an education, they're not going to serve in the army, and all, so on and so forth. Again, nothing, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Nothing really has fundamentally changed in the dialogue in the Jewish world. And the Panevizhirov, so many of the Panevizhirov's day, in his day, the ones who came from the Muster school, or the Hasidic school, or the Hungarian school, they said, the winds of change out there, the world is a dangerous place, the yeshiva is a, is a noyach's teva, an ark that protects from the outside, and you have to stay within the walls of the yeshiva to protect from outside influences, and a lot of that type of, of, of uh, ideological stance. The Panavizhirov's response, though, Again, like similar to he learned in Tells, not in Volashen, but similar to the old school Litvish intellectual elitism, he said, "We're fighting a war against Amaratsis. We're fighting a war against ignorance and against a not lack of knowledge of intensive Torah study. And the longer they stay in Kyle, the more they'll know in Torah. The bigger Talmud Chacham they have, and we want to accomplish that. We have a cadre of scholars of big Talmud Chachamim." And therefore, we keep them in the yeshiva as long as possible. So it's a, a, a similar idea to what was going on in Valajan at that time. Anything um, that would take away from the intensive Torah study, especially the great Torah study and teaching of Reb Chaim Brisker at this time, that was uh, looked down upon by the yeshiva uh, in their official stance. We'll have to continue more in part five of this series. This was a little bit more about the Velazhin Yeshiva. This was Yudi Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at ygebss at gmail.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, and trips. As soon as the coronavirus is finished, we're going to do that. Go back to regular. We're not giving up on that. And of places of Jewish history. And um, you can subscribe now to Jewish History Soundbites on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.